Section zero of Europe and Elsewhere by Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Europe and Elsewhere by Mark Twain. Read by John Greenman. An appreciation by Brander Matthews and Introduction by Albert Bigelow Payne. An Introduction. This biographical criticism was prepared by Professor Brander Matthews as an introduction to the uniform edition of Mark Twain's works, published in 1899. It is a common delusion of those who discuss contemporary literature that there is such an entity as the reading public, possessed of a certain uniformity of taste. There is not one public. There are many publics, as many, in fact, as there are different kinds of taste and the extent of an author's popularity is in proportion to the number of these separate publics he may chance to please scott for example appealed not only to those who relished romance and enjoyed excitement but also to those who appreciated his honest portrayal of sturdy characters thackeray is preferred by ambitious youths who are insidiously flattered by his tacit compliments to their knowledge of the world by the disenchanted who cannot help seeing the petty meanness of society, and by the less sophisticated in whom sentiment has not gone to seed in sentimentality. Dickens, in his own day, bid for the approval of those who liked broad caricature, and were therefore pleased with Stiggins and Chadband, of those who fed greedily on plentiful pathos, and were therefore delighted with the deathbeds of smike and paul dombey and little nell and also of those who asked for unexpected adventure and were therefore glad to disentangle the melodramatic intrigues of ralph nickleby in like manner the american author who has chosen to call himself mark twain has attained to an immense popularity because the qualities he possesses in a high degree appeal to so many and so widely varied publics first of all no doubt to the public that revels in hearty and robust fun but also to the public which is glad to be swept along by the full current of adventure which is sincerely touched by manly pathos which is satisfied by vigorous and exact portrayal of character and which respects shrewdness and wisdom and sanity and a healthy hatred of pretense and affectation and sham perhaps no one book of mark twain's with the possible exception of huckleberry finn is equally a favorite with all his readers and perhaps some of his best characteristics are absent from his earlier books or but doubtfully latent in them mark twain is many-sided and he has ripened in knowledge and in power since he first attracted attention as a wild western funny man as he has grown older he has reflected more he has both broadened and deepened the writer of comic copy for a mining camp newspaper has developed into a liberal humorist handling life seriously and making his readers think as he makes them laugh until today mark twain has perhaps the largest audience of any author now using the english language to trace the stages of this evolution and to count the steps whereby the sagebrush reporter has risen to the rank of a writer of world-wide celebrity is as interesting as it is instructive one samuel langhorne clemens was born november thirtieth eighteen thirty five at florida missouri his father was a merchant who had come from tennessee and who removed soon after his son's birth to hannibal a little town on the mississippi what hannibal was like and what were the circumstances of mr clemens boyhood we can see for ourselves in the convincing pages of tom sawyer mr howells has called hannibal a loafing out at elbows down at the heels slave-holding mississippi town and mr clemens who silently abhorred slavery was of a slave-owning family when the future author was but twelve his father died and the son had to get his education as best he could. Of actual schooling he got little, and of book-learning still less. But life itself is not a bad teacher for a boy who wants to study, 
and young Clemens did not waste his chances. He spent six years in the printing office of the little local paper, for, like not a few others on the list of American authors that stretches from Benjamin Franklin to William Dean Howells, he began his connection with literature by setting type. As a journeyman printer, the lad wandered from town to town and rambled even as far east as New York. When he was nineteen he went back to the home of his boyhood and presently resolved to become a pilot on the Mississippi. How he learned the river he has told us in Life on the Mississippi, wherein his adventures, his experiences, and his impressions while he was a cub pilot are recorded with a combination of precise veracity and abundant humor, which makes the earlier chapters of that marvelous book a most masterly fragment of autobiography. The life of a pilot was full of interest and excitement and opportunity, and what young Clemens saw and heard and divined during the years when he was going up and down the mighty river we may read in the pages of Huckleberry Finn and Puddinhead Wilson. But toward the end of the fifties the railroads began to rob the river of its supremacy as a carrier, and in the beginning of the sixties the Civil War broke out and the Mississippi no longer went unvexed to the sea. The skill, slowly and laboriously acquired, was suddenly rendered useless, and at twenty-five the young man found himself bereft of his calling. As a border state, Missouri was sending her sons into the armies of the Union and into the armies of the Confederacy, while many a man stood doubting, not knowing which way to turn. The ex-pilot has given us the record of his very brief and inglorious service as a soldier of the South. When this escapade was swiftly ended, he went to the Northwest with his brother, who had been appointed Territorial Secretary of Nevada. Thus the man who had been born on the borderland of North and South, who had gone east as a jour printer, who had been again and again up and down the Mississippi, now went west, while he was still plastic and impressionable, and he had thus another chance to increase that intimate knowledge of American life and American character, which is one of the most precious of his possessions. While still on the river he had written a satiric letter or two which found their way into print. In Nevada he went to the mines and lived the life he has described in roughing it, but when he failed to strike it rich, he naturally drifted into journalism and back into a newspaper office again. The Virginia City Enterprise was not overmanned, and the newcomer did all sorts of odd jobs, finding time now and then to write a sketch which seemed important enough to permit of his signature. He now began to sign himself Mark Twain, taking the name from a call of the man who heaves the lead on a Mississippi River steamboat, and who cries, by the Mark Three, Mark Twain, and so on. The name of Mark Twain soon began to be known to those who were curious in newspaper humor. After a while he was drawn across the mountains to San Francisco, where he found casual employment on the morning call, and where he joined himself to a little group of aspiring literators, which included Mr. Bret Hart, Mr. Noah Brooks, Mr. Charles Henry Webb, and Mr. Charles Warren Stoddard. It was in 1867 that Mr. Webb published Mark Twain's first book, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras, and it was in 1867 that the proprietors of the Alta California supplied him with the funds necessary to enable him to become one of the passengers on the steamer Quaker City, which had been chartered to take a select party on what is now known as the Mediterranean Trip. The weekly letters, in which he set forth what befell him on this journey, were printed in the Alta Sunday after Sunday, and were copied freely by the other Californian papers. These letters served as the foundation of a book published in 1869 and called The Innocents Abroad, a book which instantly brought to the author celebrity and cash. Both of these valuable aids to ambition were increased by his next step his appearance on the lecture platform. Mr. Noah Brooks, who was present at his first attempt, has recorded that Mark Twain's method as a lecturer was distinctly unique and novel. His slow, deliberate drawl, 
the anxious and perturbed expression of his visage the apparently painful effort with which he framed his sentences the surprise that spread over his face when the audience roared with delight or rapturously applauded the finer passages of his word-painting were unlike anything of the kind they had ever known in the thirty years since that first appearance the method has not changed although it has probably matured mark twain is one of the most effective of platform speakers and one of the most artistic with an art of his own which is very individual and very elaborate in spite of its seeming simplicity although he succeeded abundantly as a lecturer and although he was the author of the most widely circulated book of the decade mark twain still thought of himself only as a journalist and when he gave up the west for the east he became an editor of the buffalo express in which he had bought an interest in eighteen seventy he married and it is perhaps not indiscreet to remark that his was another of those happy unions of which there have been so many in the annals of american authorship in eighteen seventy one he removed to hartford where his home has been ever since and at the same time he gave up newspaper work in eighteen seventy two he wrote roughing it and in the following year came his first sustained attempt at fiction the gilded age written in collaboration with mr charles dudley warner the character of colonel mulberry sellers mark twain soon took out of his book to make it the central figure of a play which the late john t raymond acted hundreds of times throughout the united states the play going public pardoning the inexpertness of the dramatist in favor of the delicious humor and the compelling veracity with which the chief character was presented so universal was this type and so broadly recognizable its traits that there were few towns wherein the play was presented in which some one did not accost the actor who impersonated the ever hopeful schemer to declare i'm the original of sellers didn't mark ever tell you well he took the colonel from me encouraged by the welcome accorded to this first attempt at fiction mark twain turned to the days of his boyhood and wrote tom sawyer published in eighteen seventy five he also collected his sketches scattered here and there in newspapers and magazines toward the end of the seventies he went to europe again with his family and the result of this journey is recorded in a tramp abroad published in eighteen eighty another volume of sketches the stolen white elephant was put forth in eighteen eighty two and in the same year mark twain first came forward as a historical novelist if the prince and the pauper can fairly be called a historical novel the year after he sent forth the volume describing his life on the mississippi and in eighteen eighty four he followed this with a story in which that life has been crystallized forever huckleberry finn the finest of his books the deepest in its insight and the widest in its appeal this odyssey of the mississippi was published by a new firm in which the author was a chief partner just as sir walter scott had been an associate of ballantyne and constable there was at first a period of prosperity in which the house issued the personal memoirs of grant giving his widow checks for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in eighteen eighty six and in which mark twain himself published a connecticut yankee at king arthur's court a volume of merry tales and a story called the american claimant wherein colonel sellers reappears then there came a succession of hard years and at last the publishing house in which mark twain was a partner failed as the publishing house in which walter scott was a partner had formerly failed the author of huckleberry finn at sixty found himself suddenly saddled with a load of debt just as the author of waverley had been burdened full threescore years earlier and mark twain stood up stoutly under it as scott had done before him more fortunate than the scotchman the american has lived to pay the debt in full since the disheartening crash came he has given to the public a third mississippi river tale pudd'nhead wilson issued in eighteen ninety four and a third historical novel joan of arc a reverent and sympathetic study of the bravest figure in all french history printed anonymously in harper's magazine 
and then in a volume acknowledged by the author in 1896. As one of the results of a lecturing tour around the world, he prepared another volume of travels, Following the Equator, published toward the end of 1897. Mention must also be made of a fantastic tale called Tom Sawyer Abroad, sent forth in 1894, of a volume of sketches, the million-pound banknote, assembled in 1893, and also of a collection of literary essays, How to Tell a Story, published in 1897. This is but the barest outline of Mark Twain's life, such a brief summary as we must have before us if we wish to consider the conditions under which the author has developed and the stages of his growth. It will serve, however, to show how various have been his forms of activity, printer, pilot, miner, journalist, traveler, lecturer, novelist, publisher, and to suggest the width of his experience of life. 2. A humorist is often without honor in his own country. Perhaps this is partly because humor is likely to be familiar, and familiarity breeds contempt. Perhaps it is largely because, for some strange reason, we tend to despise those who make us laugh, while we respect those who make us weep, forgetting that there are formulas for forcing tears quite as facile as the formulas for forcing smiles. Whatever the reason, the fact is indisputable that the humorist must pay the penalty of his humor. He must run the risk of being tolerated as a mere fun-maker, not to be taken seriously, and unworthy of critical consideration. This penalty has been paid by Mark Twain. In many of the discussions of American literature he is dismissed, as though he were only a competitor of his predecessors, Artemis Ward and John Phoenix, instead of being what he is really, a writer who is to be classed, at whatever interval only time may decide, rather with Cervantes and Moliere, Like the heroines of the problem plays of the modern theater, Mark Twain has had to live down his past. His earlier writing gave but little promise of the enduring qualities obvious enough in his later works. Mr. Noah Brooks has told us how he was advised if he wished to see genuine specimens of American humor, frolicsome, extravagant, and audacious, to look up the sketches which the then almost unknown Mark Twain was printing in a Nevada newspaper. The humor of Mark Twain is still American, still frolicsome, extravagant, and audacious. But it is riper now and richer, and it has taken unto itself other qualities existing only in germ in these firstlings of his muse. The sketches in The Jumping Frog and the letters which made up the innocents abroad are comic copy, as the phrase is in newspaper offices, comic copy not altogether unlike what John Phoenix had written and Artemis Ward, better indeed than the work of these newspaper humorists, for Mark Twain had it in him to develop as they did not but not essentially dissimilar. And in the eyes of many who do not think for themselves, Mark Twain is only the author of these genuine specimens of American humor, for when the public has once made up its mind about any man's work, it does not relish any attempt to force it to unmake this opinion and to remake it. Like other juries, it does not like to be ordered to reconsider its verdict as contrary to the facts of the case. It is always sluggish in beginning the necessary readjustment, and not only sluggish but somewhat grudging. Naturally, it cannot help seeing the later works of a popular writer from the point of view it had to take to enjoy his earlier writings, and thus the author of Huckleberry Finn and Joan of Arc is forced to pay a high price for the early and abundant popularity of the Innocents Abroad. No doubt a few of his earlier sketches were inexpensive in their elements, made of materials worn threadbare by generations of earlier funny men. They were sometimes cut in the pattern of his predecessors. No doubt some of the earliest of all were crude and highly colored, and may even be called forced, not to say violent. No doubt also 
they did not suggest the seriousness and the melancholy which always must underlie the deepest humor as we find it in cervantes and moliere in swift and in lowell but even a careless reader skipping through the book in idle amusement ought to have been able to see in the innocents abroad that the writer of that liveliest of books of travel was no mere merry andrew grinning through a horse-collar to make sport for the groundlings but a sincere observer of life seeing through his own eyes and setting down what he saw with abundant humor of course but also with profound respect for the eternal verities george eliot in one of her essays calls those who parody lofty themes debasers of the moral currency mark twain is always an advocate of the sterling ethical standard he is ready to overwhelm an affectation with irresistible laughter but he never lacks reverence for the things that really deserve reverence it is not at the old masters that he scoffs in italy but rather at those who pay lip service to things which they neither enjoy nor understand for a ruin or a painting or a legend that does not seem to him to deserve the appreciation in which it is held he refuses to affect an admiration he does not feel he cannot help being honest he was born so for meanness of all kinds he has a burning contempt and on abelard he pours out the vials of his wrath he has a quick eye for all humbugs and a scorching scorn for them but there is no attempt at being funny in the manner of the cockney comedians when he stands in the awful presence of the sphinx he is not taken in by the glamour of palestine he does not lose his head there he keeps his feet but he knows that he is standing on holy ground and there is never a hint of irreverence in his attitude a tramp abroad is a better book than the innocents abroad it is quite as laughter-provoking and its manner is far more restrained mark twain was then master of his method sure of himself secure of his popularity and he could do his best and spare no pains to be certain that it was his best perhaps there is a slight falling off in following the equator a trace of fatigue of weariness of disenchantment but the last book of travels has passages as broadly humorous as any of the first and it proves the author's possession of a pithy shrewdness not to be suspected from a perusal of its earliest predecessor the first book was the work of a young fellow rejoicing in his own fun and resolved to make his readers laugh with him or at him the latest book is the work of an older man who has found that life is not all laughter but whose eye is as clear as ever and whose tongue is as plain spoken these three books of travel are like all other books of travel in that they relate in the first person what the author went forth to see autobiographic also are roughing it and life on the mississippi and they have always seemed to me better books than the more widely circulated travels they are better because they are the result of a more intimate knowledge of the material dealt with every traveler is of necessity but a bird of passage he is a mere carpet-bagger his acquaintance with the countries he visits is external only and this acquaintanceship is made only when he is a full-grown man but mark twain's knowledge of the mississippi was acquired in his youth it was not purchased with a price it was his birthright and it was internal and complete and his knowledge of the mining camp was achieved in early manhood when the mind is open and sensitive to every new impression there is in both these books a fidelity to the inner truth a certainty of touch a sweep of vision not to be found in the three books of travels for my own part i have long thought that mark twain could securely rest his right to survive as an author on those opening chapters in life on the mississippi in which he makes clear the difficulties the seeming impossibilities that fronted those who wished to learn the river these chapters are bold and brilliant and they picture for us forever a period and a set of conditions singularly interesting and splendidly varied that otherwise would have had to forego all adequate record three it is 
highly probable that when an author reveals the power of evoking views of places and of calling up portraits of people such as mark twain showed in life on the mississippi and when he has the masculine grasp of reality mark twain made evident in roughing it he must need sooner or later turn from mere fact to avowed fiction and become a storyteller the long stories which mark twain has written fall into two divisions first those of which the scene is laid in the present in reality and mostly in the mississippi valley and second those of which the scene is laid in the past in fantasy mostly and in europe as my own liking is a little less for the latter group there is no need for me now to linger over them in writing these tales of the past mark twain was making up stories in his head personally i prefer the tales of his in which he has his foot firm on reality the prince and the pauper has the essence of boyhood in it it has variety and vigor it has abundant humor and plentiful pathos and yet i for one would give the whole of it for the single chapter in which tom sawyer lets the contract for whitewashing his aunt's fence mr howells has declared that there are two kinds of fiction he likes almost equally well a real novel and a pure romance and he joyfully accepts a connecticut yankee at king arthur's court as one of the greatest romances ever imagined it is a humorous romance overflowing with stalwart fun and it is not irreverent but iconoclastic in that it breaks not a few disestablished idols it is intensely american and intensely nineteenth-century and intensely democratic in the best sense of that abused adjective the british critics were greatly displeased with the book and we are reminded of the fact that the spanish still somewhat resent don quixote because it brings out too truthfully the fatal gap in the spanish character between the ideal and the real so much of the feudal still survives in british society that mark twain's merry and elucidating assault on the past seemed to some almost an insult to the present but no critic british or american has ventured to discover any irreverence in joan of arc wherein indeed the tone is almost devout and the humor almost too much subdued perhaps it is my own distrust of the so-called historical novel my own disbelief that it can ever be anything but an inferior form of art which makes me care less for this worthy effort to honor a noble figure and elevated and dignified as is the joan of arc i do not think that it shows us mark twain at his best although it has many a passage that only he could have written it is perhaps the least characteristic of his works yet it may well be that the certain measure of success he has achieved in handling a subject so lofty and so serious will help to open the eyes of the public to see the solid merit of his other stories in which his humor has fuller play and in which his natural gifts are more abundantly displayed of these other stories three are real novels to use mr howells's phrase they are novels as real as any in any literature tom sawyer and huckleberry finn and puddenhead wilson are invaluable contributions to american literature for american literature is nothing if it is not a true picture of american life and if it does not help us to understand ourselves huckleberry finn is a very amusing volume and a generation has read its pages and laughed over it immoderately but it is very much more than a funny book it is a marvelously accurate portrayal of a whole civilization mr ormsby in an essay which accompanies his translation of don quixote has pointed out that for a full century after its publication that greatest of novels was enjoyed chiefly as a tale of humorous misadventure and that three generations had laughed over it before anybody suspected that it was more than a mere funny book it is perhaps rather with the picaresque romances of spain that huckleberry finn is to be compared than with the masterpiece of cervantes but i do not think it will be a century or take three generations before we americans generally discover how great a book huckleberry finn really is 
how keen its vision of character how close its observation of life how sound its philosophy and how it records for us once and for all certain phases of southwestern society which it is most important for us to perceive and to understand the influence of slavery the prevalence of feuds the conditions and the circumstances that make lynching possible all these things are set before us clearly and without comment it is for us to draw our own moral each for himself as we do when we see shakespeare acted huckleberry finn in its art for one thing and also in its broader range is superior to tom sawyer and to pudd'nhead wilson fine as both these are in their several ways in no book in our language to my mind has the boy simply as a boy been better realized than in tom sawyer in some respects pudd'nhead wilson is the most dramatic of mark twain's longer stories and also the most ingenious like tom sawyer and huckleberry finn it has the full flavor of the mississippi river on which its author spent his own boyhood and from contact with the soil of which he always rises reinvigorated it is by these three stories and especially by huckleberry finn that mark twain is likely to live longest nowhere else is the life of the mississippi valley so truthfully recorded nowhere else can we find a gallery of southwestern characters as varied and as voracious as those huck finn met in his wanderings the histories of literature all praise the gilles blas of le sage for its amusing adventures its natural characters its pleasant humor and its insight into human frailty and the praise is deserved but in every one of these qualities huckleberry finn is superior to gilles blas lesage set the model of the picaresque novel and mark twain followed his example but the american book is richer than the french deeper finer stronger it would be hard to find in any language better specimens of pure narrative better examples of the power of telling a story and of calling up action so that the reader cannot help but see it then mark twain's account of the shepherdson grangerford feud and his description of the shooting of boggs by sherburne and of the foiled attempt to lynch sherburne afterward these scenes fine as they are vivid powerful and most artistic in their restraint can be matched in the two other books in tom sawyer they can be paralleled by the chapter in which the boy and the girl are lost in the cave and tom seeing a gleam of light in the distance discovers that it is a candle carried by indian joe the one enemy he has in the world in pudd'nhead wilson the great passages of huckleberry finn are rivaled by that most pathetic account of the weak son willing to sell his own mother as a slave down the river although no one of the books is sustained throughout on this high level and although in truth there are in each of them passages here and there that we could wish away because they are not worthy of the association in which we find them i have no hesitation in expressing here my own conviction that the man who has given us four scenes like these is to be compared with the masters of literature and that he can abide the comparison with equanimity four perhaps i myself prefer these three mississippi valley books above all mark twain's other writings although with no lack of affection for those also partly because these have the most of the flavor of the soil about them after veracity and the sense of the universal what i best relish in literature is this native aroma pungent homely and abiding yet i feel sure that i should not rate him so high if he were the author of these three books only they are the best of him but the others are good also and good in a different way other writers have given us this local color more or less artistically more or less convincingly one new england and another new york a third virginia and a fourth georgia and a fifth wisconsin but who so well as mark twain has given us the full spectrum of the union with all his exactness in reproducing the mississippi valley mark twain is not sectional in his outlook he is national always 
He is not narrow. He is not Western or Eastern. He is American, with a certain largeness and boldness and freedom and certainty that we like to think of as befitting a country so vast as ours and a people so independent. In Mark Twain we have the national spirit as seen with our own eyes, declared Mr. Howells, and from more points of view than one, Mark Twain seems to me to be the very embodiment of Americanism. Self-educated in the hard school of life, he has gone on broadening his outlook as he has grown older. Spending many years abroad, he has come to understand other nationalities, without enfeebling his own native faith. Combining a mastery of the commonplace with an imaginative faculty, he is a practical idealist. No respecter of persons, he has a tender regard for his fellow-man. Irreverent toward all outworn superstitions, he has ever revealed the deepest respect for all things truly worthy of reverence. Unwilling to take pay in words, he is impatient always to get at the root of the matter, to pierce to the center, to see the thing as it is. He has a habit of standing upright, of thinking for himself, and of hitting hard at whatsoever seems to him hateful and mean, but at the core of him there is genuine gentleness and honest sympathy, brave humanity and sweet kindliness. Perhaps it is boastful for us to think that these characteristics which we see in Mark Twain are characteristics also of the American people as a whole, but it is pleasant to think so. Mark Twain has the very marrow of Americanism. He is as intensely and as typically American as Franklin or Emerson or Hawthorne. He has not a little of the shrewd common sense and the homely and unliterary directness of Franklin. He is not without a share of the aspirations and the elevation of Emerson, and he has a philosophy of his own as optimistic as Emerson's. He possesses also somewhat of Hawthorne's interest in ethical problems with something of the same power of getting at the heart of them. He, too, has written his parables and apologues, wherein the moral is obvious and unobtruded. He is uncompromisingly honest, and his conscience is as rugged as his style sometimes is. No American author has today at his command a style more nervous, more varied, more flexible, or more various than Mark Twain's. His colloquial ease should not hide from us his mastery of all the devices of rhetoric. He may seem to disobey the letter of the law sometimes, but he is always obedient to the spirit. He never speaks unless he has something to say, and then he says it tersely, sharply, with a freshness of epithet and an individuality of phrase always accurate, however unacademic. His vocabulary is enormous, and it is deficient only in the dead words. His language is alive always, and actually tingling with vitality. He rejoices in the daring noun and in the audacious adjective. His instinct for the exact word is not always unerring, and now and again he has failed to exercise it. But there is in his prose none of the flatting or sharping he censured in Fenimore Cooper's his style has none of the cold perfection of an antique statue. It is too modern and too American for that, and too completely the expression of the man himself. Sincere and straightforward. It is not free from slang, although this is far less frequent than one might expect. But it does its work swiftly and cleanly, and it is capable of immense variety. Consider the tale of the Blue Jay in A Tramp Abroad, wherein the humor is sustained by unstated pathos. What could be better told than this, with every word the right word and in the right place? And take Huck Finn's description of the storm when he was alone on the island, which is in dialect, which will not parse, which bristles with double negatives but which nonetheless is one of the finest passages of descriptive prose in all American literature. 5. After all, 
It is as a humorist, pure and simple, that Mark Twain is best known and best beloved. In the preceding pages I have tried to point out the several ways in which he transcends humor, as the word is commonly restricted, and to show that he is no mere fun-maker. But he is a fun-maker beyond all question, and he has made millions laugh as no other man of our century has done. The laughter he has aroused is wholesome and self-respecting. It clears the atmosphere. For this we cannot but be grateful. As Lowell said, Let us not be ashamed to confess that if we find the tragedy a bore, we take the profoundest satisfaction in the farce. It is a mark of sanity. There is no laughter in Don Quixote, the noble enthusiast whose wits are unsettled, and there is little on the lips of Alceste, the misanthrope of Moliere. But for both of them life would have been easier had they known how to laugh. Cervantes himself, and Moliere also, found relief in laughter for their melancholy, and it was the sense of humor which kept them tolerantly interested in the spectacle of humanity, although life had pressed hardly on them both. On Mark Twain also life has left its scars, but he has bound up his wounds and battled forward with a stout heart, as Cervantes did, and Moliere. It was Moliere who declared that it was a strange business to undertake to make people laugh. But even now, after two centuries, when the best of Moliere's plays are acted, mirth breaks out again and laughter overflows. It would be doing Mark Twain a disservice to liken him to Moliere, the greatest comic dramatist of all time, and yet there is more than one point of similarity. Just as Mark Twain began by writing comic copy, which contained no prophecy of a masterpiece, like Huckleberry Finn, so Moliere was at first the author only of semi-acrobatic farces on the Italian model, in no wise presaging Tartuffe and the Misanthrope. Just as Moliere succeeded first of all in pleasing the broad public that likes robust fun, and then slowly and step by step developed into a dramatist who sat on the stage, enduring figures plucked out of the abounding life about him, so also has Mark Twain grown, ascending from the jumping frog to Huckleberry Finn, as comic as its elder brother, and as laughter-provoking, but charged also with meaning and with philosophy. And like Moliere again, Mark Twain has kept solid hold of the material world. His doctrine is not of the earth earthy, but it is never sublimated into sentimentality. He sympathizes with the spiritual side of humanity, while never ignoring the sensual. Like Moliere, Mark Twain takes his stand on common sense, and thinks scorn of affectation of every sort. He understands sinners and strugglers and weaklings, and he is not harsh with them reserving his scorching hatred for hypocrites and pretenders and frauds. At how long an interval Mark Twain shall be rated after Moliere and Cervantes, it is for the future to declare. All that we can see clearly now is that it is with them that he is to be classed, with Moliere and Cervantes, with Chaucer and Fielding, humorists all of them, and all of them Manly Men Brander Matthews End of An Appreciation by Brander Matthews An Introduction by Albert Bigelow Payne A number of articles in this volume, even the more important, have not heretofore appeared in print. Mark Twain was nearly always writing, busily trying to keep up with his imagination and enthusiasm. A good many of his literary undertakings remained unfinished or were held for further consideration in time to be quite forgotten. Few of these papers were unimportant, and a fresh interest attaches to them today in the fact that they present some new details of the author's devious wanderings, some new point of observation, some hitherto unexpressed angle of his indefatigable thought. The present collection opens with a chapter from a book that was never written, a book about England, 
for which the author made some preparation during his first visit to that country in eighteen seventy two he filled several notebooks with brief comments among which appears this single complete episode the description of a visit to westminster abbey by night as an example of what the book might have been we may be sorry that it went no farther it was not however quite in line with his proposed undertaking which had been to write a more or less satirical book on english manners and customs arriving there he found that he liked the people and their country too well for that besides he was so busy entertaining and being entertained that he had little time for critical observation in a letter home he wrote i came here to take notes for a book but i haven't done much but attend dinners and make speeches i have had a jolly good time and i do hate to go away from these english folks they make a stranger feel entirely at home and they laugh so easily that it is a comfort to make after-dinner speeches here england at this time gave mark twain an even fuller appreciation than he had thus far received in his own country to hunt out and hold up to ridicule the foibles of hosts so hospitable would have been quite foreign to his nature the notes he made had little satire in them being mainly memoranda of the moment down the rhone written some twenty years later is a chapter from another book that failed of completion mark twain in europe partly for his health partly for financial reasons had agreed to write six letters for the new york sun two of which those from aix and marienbad appear in this volume six letters would not make a book of sufficient size and he thought he might supplement them by making a drifting trip down the rhone the river of angels as stevenson called it and turning it into literature the trip itself proved to be one of the most delightful excursions of his life and his account of it so far as completed has interest and charm but he was alone with only his boatman the admiral and his courier joseph verdi for company a monotony of human material that was not inspiring he made some attempt to introduce fictitious characters but presently gave up the idea as a whole the excursion was too drowsy and comfortable to stir him to continuous effort neither the notes nor the article attempted somewhat later ever came to conclusion three articles in this volume beginning with to the person sitting in darkness were published in the north american review during nineteen o one nineteen o two at a period when mark twain had pretty well made up his mind on most subjects and especially concerning the interference of one nation with another on matters of religion and government he had recently returned from a ten years sojourn in europe and his opinion was eagerly sought on all public questions especially upon those of international aspect he was no longer regarded merely as a humorist but as a sort of solon presiding over a court of final conclusions a writer in the evening mail said of this later period things have reached the point where if mark twain is not at a public meeting or banquet he is expected to console it with one of his inimitable letters of advice and encouragement his old friend w d howells expressed an amused fear that mark twain's countrymen who in former years had expected him to be merely a humorist should now in the light of his wider acceptance abroad demand that he be mainly serious he was serious enough and fiercely humorous as well in his article to the person sitting in darkness and in those which followed it it seemed to him that the human race always a doubtful quality was behaving even worse than usual on new year's eve nineteen hundred nineteen o one he wrote a greeting from the nineteenth to the twentieth century i bring you the stately nation named christendom returning bedraggled besmirched and dishonored from pirate raids in kiao chow 
Manchuria, South Africa, and the Philippines, with her soul full of meanness, her pocket full of boodle, and her mouth full of pious hypocrisies. Give her soap and a towel, but hide the looking-glass. Certain missionary activities in China, in particular, invited his attention, and in the first of the review articles he unburdened himself. A masterpiece of pitiless exposition and sarcasm, its publication stirred up a cyclone. Periodicals, more or less orthodox, heaped upon him denunciation and vituperation. To my missionary critics, published in the review for April, was his answer. He did not fight alone, but was upheld by a vast following of liberal-minded readers, both in and out of the church. Edward S. Martin wrote him, How gratifying it is to feel that we have a man among us who understands the rarity of plain truth, and who delights to utter it, and has the gift of doing so without cant, and with not too much seriousness. The principles of the primal human drama, our biblical parents of Eden, play a considerable part in Mark Twain's imaginative writings. He wrote diaries of both Adam and Eve, that of the latter being among his choicest works. He was generally planning something that would include one or both of the traditional ancestors, and results of this tendency express themselves in the present volume. Satan, likewise, the picturesque angel of rebellion and defeat, the Satan of Paradise Lost, made a strong appeal, and in no less than three of the articles which follow the Prince of Error variously appears. For the most part these inventions offer an aspect of humor, but again the figure of the outcast angel is presented to us in an attitude of sorrowful kinship with the great human tragedy. Albert Bigelow Payne End of section zero, an appreciation by Brander Matthews, and an introduction by Albert Bigelow Payne. Read by John Greenman.